0: At the uh, end of 2013, we were packing to move from Pennsylvania to Texas, uh, but we couldn't sell our house. And so after we moved, most of our belongings were stored in a garage in Houston for 18 months. We finally sold our house in Pennsylvania, bought one in Texas, and when we unpacked what had been in storage, Some of it just got thrown away, but things had changed. Uh, For example, uh, this globe that I had carefully packed some time before is coming on the next slide. There we go. And I'd uh, wrapped it carefully 18 months before. Um, And I packed it, though, in a box that included this red candle. And although I surrounded the candle with packing paper, I did not account for the 110 degree Texas heat, (laughs) nor an 18-month delay. And the candle did leave its mark, and after I cleaned it, it permanently stained the Bay of Bengal, India, Tibet, and China. (laughs) Now, as people becoming more like Jesus, we need to ask, if we are changing our world, or are letting the world change us? Are we studying through Genesis and seeing here a very important truth? This section of Genesis I'm calling "Obstacles to God's Promises." As we follow Abraham's life, and we're seeing week after week obstacles that he's facing to see the promise of God fulfilled. And we come now to this story in chapter 19 that is bad from start to finish. I mean, it's got violence it's the threat of gang rape there's fiery destruction there's incest and the main character in this chapter is lot a guy whose life is shaped by his culture our culture can be an obstacle to seeing the promises of god in our lives how do we live in a culture that is basically ungodly as the people of god how, how can we be light in our world rather than being stained by it? Well, well, that's what we can learn as we look at Genesis chapter 19, and basically it's the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, I'm going to take you through this story that some of you know, others of you might not. And as, after we go through the story, I want to point out to you three questions to ask while living in an ungodly culture. So these are questions that you and I, as we look at Genesis 19, three questions that you and I, if we're going to follow Jesus, need to be asking and answering as we seek to follow Jesus in our world. Now this chapter is mostly focused on Lot, who is the the nephew of Abraham. Uh, We've seen him throughout these uh, chapters here. And Lot chose to separate from Abraham and move next to the city of Sodom, which he knew was, the Bible says, exceedingly wicked. And then he moved into the city. Not next to He moved into the city despite that epic wickedness. And as we pointed out uh, last week, the sins of Sodom were many. And Ezekiel 16 says they were guilty of pride, self-indulgence, gluttony, neglect of the poor and needy, and, and did detestable things. And that Hebrew word is toyeba, which means morally disgusting behavior. And so God told Abraham that he was going to destroy these evil cities. And Abraham, we saw last week, begging God not to do it. If God, if there's just 10 righteous people, will you save the whole city? That was Abraham's prayer. And the Lord sent two angels to investigate what was going on. And there they found Lot. Verse 1 of chapter 19. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. You need to appreciate how important this is. Uh, What I have here in this picture is an archaeological site of a city. Uh, This is a a bench between the two great walls of the city. So therefore, when you entered the city, you passed through one wall, there was this bench, and then you passed through the the, the other wall, the other gate into the city. And that bench in the ancient world is where all the important dignitaries sat. When you're the elder of the city, when you're a great businessman, that's where business and legal decisions happen in that area. In other words, that's where Lot is. He's an important guy in Sodom. He's a dignitary in a sense, a place of honor. So the angels arrived at night, and when he, Lot, discovers that these two visitors plan to camp out in the, in the town square, he knows this is a bad idea. And he urges them to come home to, with his, to his house, and after he feeds them, the guests didn't even have a chance to, to, to lay down before trouble started. Verse 4, before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. So all the men of every age surround the house, demanding that Lot turn over these two guests. Now some translations say that the men wanted to know them. Let us know these guests. The Hebrew word is yadah, which uh, in context clearly means sexual activity. They intend, it seems, to gang rape these two visitors. And Lot begs these men not to do it. Begs them. And what he does is, though it's worse, Lot then says, take my two virgin daughters instead. Now, how and why would Lot do something so revolting? Well, maybe he assumed, well, this is kind of shock value, and maybe they'll realize that how wrong this is. No, they didn't, and they didn't want his daughters, uh, and um, the mob started to break down the door and threatened to tear Lot apart when the two angels intervened. They struck the crowd with blindness, and that blindness was sudden and it was temporary, likely caused by a flash of brilliant light. And while these attackers sightlessly stumble around, the two angels tell Lot to gather his family. Why? Verse 12. Get them out of here, because we're going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So God's judgment was coming on Sodom and Gomorrah because of their moral perversion and pride, their self-indulgence, their neglect of the poor, and all this disgusting behavior. The culture of Sodom was exceedingly wicked. Now, Lot took the warning seriously, and he went to warn his two future son-in-laws, but they just laughed at him. Uh, they, They mocked him. And so the angel said, well, just go. Take your wife, your daughters, and get out of here before it's too late. And still, Lot hesitates. He doesn't do it. The angels eventually have to pull the four of them, Lot, his wife, his two daughters, out of the city, and they warn him, don't stop and don't look back just escape to the hills. Go to the hills. Austin, go to the hills. No. Lot is afraid of the hills. He doesn't want to go there. So he says, Can I, I just, there's this city nearby, Zoar. Can I, it's this little place. Can I go there? And the angels allow this change in plan, and Lot leads his family to this place. Verse 23, by the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. Now, uh, back in uh, 2021, a scientific study was published that uh, on the remains of this ancient civilization, they were suggesting could be ancient Sodom. And this was uh, this scientific report was published Published in the Smithsonian Magazine and the Times of Israel, the Post of Jerusalem, uh, Biblical Archaeology Review called this site a strong candidate for the city of Sodom. Now, what made headlines was that this study found uh, the ancient civilization had been wiped out by a catastrophic explosion 3,600 years ago, which is about the same timeline we're talking about. So the scientific study, which I read last week, it's about 100 pages. There's charts, there's graphs, there's equations, there's data. I have no ability to verify, so I can't tell you, oh, this is 100% real. But the, the study presents uh, evidence of a cosmic airburst that left melted bricks, melted pottery, melted roofing clay, minerals, salt crystals. And tests indicated a burn layer with temperatures exceeding 2,000 degrees Celsius there. And they also reported charred bone fragments in all of this. Now, whether that's ancient Sodom or not is not the point. That area of the Dead Sea Plain contains lots of natural ingredients for this fiery judgment. Bitumen, sulfur, petroleum, salt. And while the the plain was originally lush and well-watered, it remains desolate to this very day. And the angels had warned them not to look back at the city. But verse 26, Lot's wife can't resist. And the burning sulfur engulfs her as well, and she dies. So now it's just down to Lot and his two daughters. Miles away, the text tells us, Abraham gets up the next morning, looks down at Sodom, and he sees this dense smoke rising. He had begged God to save an entire city if there were just ten righteous people. Now he knows there weren't ten righteous people. What he doesn't know, and what I don't think he ever learns in his lifetime, is that God spared Lot and his two daughters. In verse 30, we learn that even though Lot begged to go to Zoar, now he's afraid to stay there. So Lot leaves and he goes up into the mountains with his two daughters and they move into a cave. And we quickly learn that even though those cities that were so wicked were destroyed, sin is still alive and well. And you know why? Because don't make this mistake that many American Christians make. Sin is out there somewhere. Sin's not out there. You know where sin is? It's in here. It's in the human heart. And so we learn very quickly, as Lot's oldest daughter conspires with her sister, our father is old and there's no man around here to give us children. Let us get our father to drink wine and sleep with him and preserve our family line through our father. So they're hiding out in a mountain cave after seeing everything they knew destroyed. And these daughters want to preserve the family name. I think this also could be a reaction to what they experienced when they... heard their dad offer them up to a violent mob, and they realize, Dad doesn't really care about us anyway. He thinks we're worthless. And they realize how little he values them. So they get Lot drunk, and they have sex with him two nights in a row. And the Bible says that Lot is so intoxicated, he has no idea what's going on. Each daughter becomes pregnant through this incestuous act and has a son. And by the way, the first two accounts of drunkenness in the Bible are Noah and Lot. We've covered them now, both of them. Not only do both of those accounts of drunkenness lead to sexual misconduct, but they also bring about the three people groups who were the enemies of Israel. Canaan, Moab, and Ammon. So, what does this messy story have to teach us anyway? And this is a mess, right? Lot, I don't know about you, he doesn't sound like a good guy. I mean, I mean, And understand, the Bible is not the story of a bunch of bad guys versus a bunch of good guys. There are no good guys. There's just a bunch of bad guys and one good guy named Jesus. That's the story of the Bible. You see, none of us are righteous, not even one. We all sin. We all fall short of God's glory. We all deserve God's judgment But through our faith in God, through our faith in the sinless Jesus, his sacrifice on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection, we become righteous, holy, perfect in the sight of God. And so as flawed as Lot was, he has something to teach us about how to live in an ungodly culture as a godly person. say, well, was he? Look what the New Testament says about Lot. 2 Peter 2, God rescued righteous Lot, who was distressed in his righteous soul by the wickedness he saw and heard day after day. Really? Righteous? That's not the first word that comes to my mind. He's a mess. We you see, apart from Christ, we're all a mess. We're all hopeless. And the only way we can be acceptable to God is through Jesus. Repent and turn to the Savior. So here, as we've looked at this story, and I can't give you every detail, but as we've looked at it, here are three questions to ask while living in an ungodly culture. They come right from this text. Here they are, question number one. Who am I influencing? Who am I influencing? See, the whole reason Lot went to Sodom, because he had the choice of anywhere to go. He, went, he didn't go there to benefit the city. He went there to have the city benefit him, because it was prosperous. And he ended up sitting at the gate, an elder, a leader. He has a position. He has no impact. He hasn't influenced the city. The city has influenced him. And when he tries to warn his sons-in-law, they just laugh. Tazak is the Hebrew word. That means they mocked him, they jested, they made light of him. And this reaction reflects on their character, but it also reflects on Lot's character. He isn't taken seriously. His sons-in-law aren't any different than the rest of the city. Lot's influence on his daughters, oh, that was great, right? That's obviously flawed. Their moral compass is so broken that drunkenness and incest are valid options. So, listen to this. The biggest problem was not that Lot was in Sodom's culture, but that Sodom's culture was in Lot. That's the big problem. He'd been influenced by the city instead of influencing the city. His righteousness had no effect on his family or community. Now, Jesus calls us to bring light and flavor to our world. He's put us in a place where we can be salt and light You can be a righteous influence in your neighborhood, in your club, in your group, in your circle of friends. But what derails us as Christians is we get sucked into all the same things that everybody else is living for. Travel, money, sports, restaurants, hobbies, events, music, and get too distracted to be an influence for righteousness. You know, I've seen examples of of Christians who are so worked up against culture and they're fighting it, they're protesting it, and and they fail to influence their own children or their closest friends. If you want to live for for God in a culture that doesn't, you must ask, who am I influencing? The danger is not that you live in this culture, the danger is that you allow that culture to live in you. Second question, where's my heart? Lot's story gives us uh, An evidence that his loyalties are divided. His desires are misplaced. Uh, the, the angels tell him destruction is coming. Take your family and go. Verse 16, he hesitates. He drags his feet. Why? He did, he, he, he seems, his heart seems to be in Sodom with the people, the possessions, the position that he had. He's leaving behind. And most famously is Mrs. Lot, who despite being warned, couldn't resist, looked back and it cost her life. In the Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis said, Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it, while really it is finding its place in him. See, you and I are surrounded by an ungodly culture. And sometimes, sometimes people react by having this like, intense interest in prophecy, in the end time events, getting really focused on the world to come. Now, now Scripture urges us to long for the appearing of Jesus but more important than trying to figure out end time events is living to please God right now. It's loving the right things. All right, what's the shortest verse in the Bible? Jesus wept. You good. It took you a while to memorize it, but it's a good one, right? <laughs> Second shortest verse in the Bible. Second shortest verse in the Bible actually is something Jesus said himself. In Luke 12, Jesus warns against all kinds of greed. All kinds and he says, Life isn't about how much stuff you have. And then Jesus talks about his return. And he says, well, You know, that return, it's going to be like it was in Lot's day, Jesus says. People are eating, they're drinking, they're buying, they're selling, and then boom, fiery judgment. And that's how the Son of Man, he says, will be revealed. And then Jesus says, Remember Lot's wife. Second shortest verse in the Bible remember Lot's wife why she set her desires on the wrong things her affection in the wrong place you want to be ready for the apocalypse you want to be ready for the revealing which is what apocalypse is revealing of the Lord Jesus from heaven love the right things now whatever you treasure most that's where your heart will be Jesus said where's my heart third question what do I fear you know, I read this story for decades. We finally, I finally noticed the theme of fear. Oh, it's there early. Lot's afraid of his guests, for his guests. He's afraid of his society. It, but he's panicking over all the wrong things. The angels had to pull him out of the city. And when they point him to the hills as a place of safety, he's afraid of the hills. He wants the city walls and the safety of people, and he begs, let, let me go to Zoar instead. And then he gets to Zoar, and he's afraid of Zoar. So he heads for the hills and hides in a cave. Let me tell you that a common reaction among Christians is to fear culture. It's to be afraid of it. They panic about threats to personal freedom. They worry about their rights. And they're terrified about social trends. And they're alarmed by the direction of the country. And they're frightened that sinful behavior seems more acceptable than religious expression. That they're dismayed over politics and violence and economic conditions. But what does Scripture repeatedly tell God's people that fear is an inappropriate reaction. Hebrews thirteen six. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Jesus said, don't be afraid of people, Luke 12, 5. The only one you should fear is God himself. Brothers and sisters, what do you fear? Look at the sources of panic and alarm in your life. Are you fearing the wrong things? Let me tell you, the more you fear God, the less you're going to fear anything or anyone else. So stop with your angry, fearful Facebook posts. And I'm not talking to anyone in particular because I've never had a Facebook account, so I don't know, but I know. Stop. Stop wringing your hands with worry. Stop building barriers to keep out the world. Stop hiding. Stop overreacting to what's going on in culture. Fear God and influence your world. 400 years ago, Puritan theologian, Richard Baxter said, why are you trembling, O humble recipient of grace? He that would not lose one Noah in the flood, nor overlook one lot in Sodom, will he forget you at that day? No, he won't. You know, this cesspool of a story has one clear, calm center, and it's Abraham. He's not perfect, but what did he do? He prayed passionately and persistently for God to save the whole city if there were just 10 righteous people in it he knew how corrupt the culture was Abraham was well aware of the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah but he cared deeply for those cities anyway yet he got to witness their destruction chapter 19 verse 27 early the next morning Abraham got up and looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace So, when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. God saved Lot in response to Abraham's prayer. Abraham didn't use his proven military might to make a change. Abraham did not forcibly remove Lot from his pagan surroundings. Abraham didn't bury his head in the sand. He knew this evil culture around him. He cried out to God, Abraham did, and he trusted. God answered, even though Abraham didn't know it. Abraham didn't know God answered his prayer, didn't know he saved Lot. You know, this gives me a really good indication of how to live in an ungodly world. Uh, 2 Peter interprets the Lot story for us. It says, If God rescued Lot, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment. Now, what does this mean? It tells us how to live in an ungodly world. Here it is. I'll put it in one sentence. You must pray for your culture, trusting God to rescue and to judge. This, my friends, is the only way you can live righteously in an ungodly culture, is if you trust that God knows how to both rescue and judge. This trusts you to live with assurance in the righteousness of Christ and to care deeply for the souls of those around you. And without confidence in both of those truths, you're either going to go to war with culture, or you're going to conform to culture. And both of those are the wrong approach. Now, let me tell you, I don't ignore popular culture. Never have. I don't ignore it. I pay it some attention. So I try to be aware of what's trending on TikTok. And some of you don't even know what TikTok is. I, I try to know what are the most popular movies and who wins the Grammys and the hottest apps and maybe the names of the Kardashians and who Taylor Swift is dating this month, you know. And in Sun City, it's also relevant for me to keep up with you know what's happening on Wheel of Fortune. <laughs> And the latest trends in knee replacement, you know, those kind of things. <laughs> so I know that. I, I study theology and history and literature, and I also study culture. Why? Because if I'm an ambassador for Jesus, I gotta know my world. See, if we all moved into some gated Christian community, tried to shut out the evil influences of the world, we would never accomplish the mission Jesus gave us. Wouldn't do it. Shining like stars in a dark universe. But at the same time, I've got to be different from my world. Different is not weird, odd, eccentric, as many Christians seem to think. That's not how should I be different from my world? How? Well, uh, once word got out on the pickleball courts that I was a pastor Some people radically changed. It was amazing. So there's this one guy I played with and uh, he missed a shot and he let out some, like a string of curse words. And then he like turned to me and he goes, Sorry, Father. (laughs) I said, You're old enough to be my father. (sighs) Different doesn't mean I make people feel uncomfortable so that they don't want to be around me. Different means I reflect love and grace and goodness and peace and joy and self-control. That's what different looks like, especially in our world. And it means I think biblically and live righteously. It means I ask these three questions. Who am I influencing? Where is my heart? What do I fear? This story matters because if you haven't turned to God through faith in Jesus, you're going to face His judgment. God's perfect son is your only escape. Come to Jesus or face the wrath of a holy God. And if your faith is in Christ, this story is a call to live confidently in a broken world and pray for others. Pray for your family. Pray for your friends. Pray for your community, your city. And when do you know that God is at work influencing culture and changing lives? It's not when a specific candidate is voted into office. It's not when certain laws are created or certain laws are abolished. It's not when celebrities, politicians, or athletes give credit to Jesus. You know, God is at work when you are called to pray for your world and live righteously in it. The Lord Almighty, guess what? He has everything under control. Just as he rescued righteous Lot, he's going to rescue all those who cling to Christ alone. And just as he judged those wicked cities, so he will bring ultimate justice against all unrighteousness. So please don't panic when evil seems to be winning. Don't fear this world he's placed you in. Pray for your culture while you trust the rescuer and judge of all the earth. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. And now, people of God,